Alright, so just a, a little bit of a recap. We are in this section now where we are studying the, the roles or offices of Jesus Christ. And we, we talk about prophet, priest, and king, right? Now, I don't know about you guys, but it's really easy for that to just roll off your tongue. Prophet, priest, and king. And, and we don't really internalize that or understand it. So I'm really going to encourage you, like I did a couple weeks ago, it's important, right, that we study doctrine, that we study theology, but make sure you, you, you apply it. Make sure we take this and we really understand what these roles mean and what they mean to our life. It should give us an extremely high view of God, right? And that's the purpose. And it should also give us a very correct view of who we are outside of Christ and in Christ. And we'll talk about that. So I want you to think about that as we go through um, the lesson today. Well, actually, the entire you know, semester and semesters that follow, it's really important, the application uh, to get a right view of God. So the last um, week we talked about Jesus Christ as prophet. And what was a prophet again? It can be someone who tells what's happening in the future. Okay. Specifically in the Bible, when we talk about a prophet, though, keep going. What, what are they telling? They speak God's truth. Yeah, right? Yeah, that's it. They, they, are, they are messengers of God. And what was unique about Jesus Christ? He was the prophet. He certainly conveyed the words of God. But what was unique about Jesus Christ? He was the fulfillment of the prophecy. He, the of the prophecy. he was the word of God, right? We see that in John 1. He was the Word manifested in, in human flesh. That's just critically, critically important. And I loved, um, let me go back to, I loved at the end how Pastor Allen pointed out the different ways. Uh, point four, as a master teacher, he spoke with unique authority and used the variety of methods to communicate to impress the truth of God. So how he communicated that right through all the different methods demonstration, we talked about analogies, parables, uh, allegories, right? But this demonstration of the word in his life. And that's what's so important. We're going to talk about that as a representative. It was important that in his life, complete obedience to the Father. Okay? So that was prophet. So we're going to spend actually the next three Sundays talking about this role as high priest. The high priest. Um, someone give me a definition of priest, high priest. Keep it simple. Okay? A mediator, an intercessor. Okay? High priest in the Bible. What was their role? Sure. They were the mediator between God and man. Why? Why did we need a mediator? Connor. They offer sacrifices. They offer sacrifices, right? Why did we need to offer sacrifices? And to God for things. Because we were separated from God, weren't we? Because of the fall, right? We were totally separated from that relationship. And so there needed to be a mediator, someone who would offer that sacrifice. Now, if you remember, I was going to pull up my slides and I forgot to bring my computer. Um, I had a nice slide. You remember the Old Testament? They built the tabernacle. That where, that's where God manifested himself to the people at that time. All right? And the way they constructed that is halfway through it, they had this huge veil. It was huge. And behind it, as you mentioned, was the Holy of Holies. And who could enter the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest. Once a year, right? So let's go to Hebrews, if you will, chapter 5. 
We're going to spend some time in chapter 4, so you'll already be there. Hebrews chapter 5, and it gives you a bit of a description of the high priest um, from the Old Testament. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So again, we have that advocate or mediation, right, between men and God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So the high priest was appointed by God. And we see Aaron, first one in the Old Testament, right, that would go into the tabernacle. Had to be a sacrifice, had to be shed blood. That was the requirement, all right? And what did he have to do for himself? Right? He needed the sacrifice as well. And as Pastor Allen commented a couple weeks ago, it was a covering. The sin was never taken away, but it was a covering, an atonement. So they had to repeat it. Kayla, like you said, every year they had to go back right, again and again and again. So we'll talk more about that. So that's the vision we have of a high priest. right? So keep that vision as we talk about now Jesus Christ fulfilling that role. We're on page 41 in your lesson. Jesus' role as high priest. Jesus Christ, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Jesus Christ was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin, either in his body or soul. He always did the will of his Father. Jesus Christ was and is the only sinless human being. Won't go into a lot of detail. We talked about this a lot a couple weeks ago, right? When we talked about the dual nature of Jesus Christ. And that's important. That's the truth that we know. You know, we had a really good discussion about, well, how could Jesus be tempted? Could he sin? And there's some different views on that, right? It's important to, and I didn't do a good job of this, of, of relaying that those are views, right? Not necessarily the view that, that we prescribe here. What we do prescribe is what we find in Scripture, what the truth is. And that is we have one person in Jesus Christ, right? One person indivisible with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, right? And that's how we have to explain what's happening. That's the truth that we know about. But what we do know, Scripture will tell us that he was tempted. We may not understand the mechanics of all that, but he was tempted in every way that we are. And we're going to talk about the encouragement that should be. So I want to ask this question to you as we talk about this particular section about being tempted. How does the fact that he was tempted in every way without sin enable him to be our great high priest? All right, I want you to think about that. All right, the first passage is a familiar one, but there's a lot here that we have to go through. We've covered it before, but it's worth covering again. Matthew 4. So this is one of the uh, preeminent examples of Jesus being tempted, severely tempted. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let me pause there. So he was led up by who? All right, so the Spirit led him there. It was all part of the plan for him to be tempted. This word, to be tempted, a Greek word, parazo, has the intention of proving that one has been evil or to make him evil. Do you get that? It's trying to trip you up, to cause you to sin. 
When God tests us, is he trying to trip us up? Absolutely not. He's actually trying to demonstrate our faith, to prove out our faith through testing. Remember, God does not tempt. But here, Jesus being tempted by Satan, his intention is nefarious. He wants to trip Jesus up. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And you can imagine extreme hunger after 40 days and 40 nights. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Again, challenging his authority, right? If you are the Son of God. Not since you are the Son of God, but if you are the Son of God. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus, what does he do? How does he combat Satan here? He quotes scripture. He goes back to the word. Do you know where that's from? Deuteronomy. Correct. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Again, challenging his authority. For it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. What's Satan doing here? He's using Scripture. But what does he do? Takes it out of context, right? That's the danger for us too. When we dispense Scripture to somebody, we have to be very careful, right, that we're ministering the Word. We're keeping it in context. Um, Where does Satan pull that Scripture? Anybody know? It's actually Psalm 91. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Jesus' response is from Deuteronomy as well. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he guessed where that's from. Deuteronomy, right? All of that is after the Shema, right? Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, right? And to pass on from generation to generation the word. So important for us to be meditating, memorizing, and digging into Scripture for this very purpose. Then the result, then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. All right, so you can see again, um, it's hard to understand, but just think about 40 days of fasting without food and water, right? Um, He'd probably be emaciated, extreme hunger, right? Under intense temptation. And we talked the other day, he understood the full impact of temptation. We often don't. Why? Because we give in. We give in before we understand the full thrust of of temptation. The next um, passage, I don't want to go through the whole thing. It it is uh, another um, account of that same episode, if you will, but from Luke. But I just wanted to highlight a, a couple things here at the very beginning. And it says, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. 
So in Matthew, you see led by the Spirit. Um, in Luke 4, full of the Holy Spirit. In his human nature, Jesus still relied on the Holy Spirit. And he was full of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk some more about that. How do we overcome temptation? We need to be full of the Holy Spirit. Um, you'll see again Satan also in this passage, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Let me ask you, how does, how does Satan tempt us sometimes in a similar way? If you are a believer, if you are a child of God, why, why do you keep doing what you're not supposed to be doing? Right? He can use the same tactic. Why it's so important for us to understand who we are as children of God. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does that mean we'll struggle with sin? Absolutely. Until we're time of glorification. All right? But you can see that the same tactics can be used on ourselves. If, if you have to combat that. We are, as a believer, you are a child of God. And all of those promises. That's why I love Romans 8. It's full of promises as a child of God. Assurances of who we are in Christ. And then at the very end, you'll see, and when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So that wasn't the end of the battle, was it? Right? Jesus would continue to be tempted, and we see the, the really big uh, climactic one in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. The victory on the cross, of course. All right, can I have, uh, Zach, would you mind reading the next passage, John eight forty six? Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? Good. Again, testing Jesus' authority and deity. Constantly. We see that throughout out the uh, New Testament, don't we? Again and again and again. Let me jump down to Romans 5. For through the one man's disobedience, who is that? Adam, the many were made sinners. So that's where we, we have that inherited sin nature, the inherited guilt. Even so, through the obedience of the one, who's that? Jesus. Jesus Christ. The many will be made righteous. And then the last passage there on page 41, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, let's be careful there. He knew no sin to be sin. Was Jesus sinful? No way. He couldn't be, right? It's this idea of bearing our sins. Uh, you've heard of the term imputation, right? This idea where our sin is credited to his account and our righteousness is, or his righteousness is credited to us. Right? He bore the sins. He never became sin. Why? Go back to the two natures. In his divine nature, there's no, he could not be sin ever. It's impossible. Right? It goes against his, his very essence. So that's why it's important to go back to what we know, what it says in Scripture. And that dual nature in one indivisible person is so incredibly important. And that's how we can explain it. All right, good. All right, let's turn over to the next page, page 42. And I want to go back to the question I asked you. How does the fact that he is tempted, 
that he was tempted in every way without sin enable him to be our great high priest? And we're going to see the answer in the next two verses here. Starting in Hebrews 2, 18. Uh, tell you what, let, let's go to your Bible again to Hebrews, because I wanted to expand that. I wanted to pick it up in actually verse 16. Hebrews 2, 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Who's the offspring of Abraham? Believers, right? That's us, if you're a believer. Therefore, and it talks about, what he's talking about here is helping, right? He's helping us, the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Right, this idea of propitiation we're going to talk about next week, so I won't highlight that. But it talks here about him being a faithful high priest. And you see in verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted. Being tempted was not easy for Jesus, just like it's not for us. That's why I say he, he felt the full weight of what temptation meant and was. Right, So he suffered through that. But he is able to help those who are being tempted. That should be our encouragement. In the, I think it's the NASB, Hebrews 2.18 in your book there, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid. Right? He is able to help us. That's, that's the impact of Jesus going through temptation. He is able to help us. And then the next verse, I love it, right? Um, in fact, let's go again to your Bibles. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Right? He can sympathize because he's been there. He's done that. But let's go on to verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Right? That's the hope, that's the confidence that we can now approach the throne with confidence. I go back to, right? often we can say, I, I sinned again, I sinned again. We can condemn ourselves. We can approach the throne with confidence. Right? That should be one of those verses you underline in your Bible. Approach the throne in confidence. I want you to also turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Brothers and sisters, I hope that gives you great, great comfort today. Right? This is another passage that should be underlined in your Bible. He totally understands. It, it is easy to get into um, an issue in your life, right? God doesn't understand. He's never been a single mom before. He, he can't even begin to understand what that looks like. Pornography was not even a thing in Jesus' time. He can't understand. 
He understands everything. That's what Scripture tells us. He understands everything. And we need to be turning to Him, running to Him, right? He will give us the power we need to resist temptation if we seek it. Problem is, we don't seek it. We enjoy that. We give in to the desires. And, and I'm pointing the finger at me, guys, right? We give in. We don't resist like Jesus resisted. But let that be an incredible source of encouragement and hope. So I want to do this. I want you to turn to the next page. Turn over to 45. The application. We're going to skip ahead and cover the application right now. The question is, how should we respond to temptation? How should we prepare for future temptations? Provide scripture passages to support your conclusion. So let's just camp out here for a little bit and let's be real. Right? From what we've learned, from what we've just discussed, how, how would you answer that? How should we respond to temptation? How do we prepare for future? And if you have some scripture passages to support that. Give me one item. Miss Kayla. We see clearly, right? We, we, um, last week, Pastor Allen, we talked about the methods of, of Jesus communicating. Many of those were demonstration. So we see in Matthew 4, right? How did he demonstrate resisting Satan? He quoted scripture. So he had to know scripture, which means you have to study it. You come to uh, growing disciple classes. You're in Bible study classes. You're in small group. Um, you're in home study, right? We're entering a, a new year. You may have a resolution to do the Bible in a year, right? Lots and lots of methods. And today, I, I mean, think about it, the tools that we have at our disposal to, to study the Bible and to understand it clearly is just... It's never been like that in any time, right? There's no excuse for, for us not to understand our Bible. Um, I thought I wrote it down. Oh, yeah. How did, how did Jesus learn those scriptures? I mean, he is God. Spending time in the temple. He was human too, wasn't he? He, he had a virgin birth. He was this little, sweet little baby. Did he know those scriptures as a sweet little baby? I will speculate he did not. Luke 2 talks about Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And this was after the episode of the temple, right? Where his parents were looking for him and where did they find him? He was in the temple and, they, and the people were astounded with his knowledge. My point is, is he had to grow in the word. He had to study the word as well. Yes, he had a divine nature, right? And we talked about that that paradox or that, that complexity, if you will. But he still had to grow in, in, in his human nature. So my point is, hopefully an encouragement to you all, we, we all have to grow. All right, good. So understanding the word, memorizing, meditating. What else? Prayer. Prayer, right? And we, we just cover that in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 too, right? Diane. So I think you that we shouldn't be in. Amen. The word says, you know, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we always have to be aware of that. 
I think that's a great point, Diane, right? Understanding the context we put ourselves in and using wisdom and discernment, right, to protect ourselves. And I would say this, I, I think we all can identify, we probably all have certain things that we struggle with that are different from others, right? And it's important to recognize that, and that might be something you have to resist and struggle with the entire time you're here on the earth. But putting yourselves in situations that will increase that temptation, that's what you're talking about. That's what you have to have discernment to, to not put yourself in those situations. Good. What else? Connor, did you have something? Um, bring, in, bring other people in to help you. Okay. Accountability partners, right? That's why um, I really strongly encourage people to be in a small group. Um, as a starting point. It's a great way as, as a small group of fellowship. Those groups get, get real and vulnerable and they pray for each other. They're there for each other. It's just a great way to have some of that accountability. And I would ask you this, if you're in a small group, be that person for the other people in your small group, right? It's easy for some of those people to just drift away. You should be noticing that. You should be calling them. Hey, I haven't seen you in a bit. Is everything okay? Why don't I meet you at church and we can have coffee afterwards? All right, you get the point there, small groups. But there are a lot of different other groups, different study uh, groups going on. There's different men groups. Uh, Mike uh, Moody leads a group for men that, that struggle with um, um, you know, pornography and that type of thing. Great accountability, right? That's important. It's doing some great, great work, some great fruit we see in these men. Good. What else? I'm looking for one more thing that we highlighted um, in the account of Matthew 4. What did Jesus have? The, line of the, Holy Spirit. the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. All right? We cannot resist temptation without the Holy Spirit. You have to be a believer. Good. All right, so I, I did. I wanted to camp out there a little bit because I thought that was really, really important, um, hopefully as an encouragement. And again, all of this in the context of Jesus as our high priest, right? We aren't fighting this fight by ourselves. We, we have this, this uh, mediator for us who is interceding, who understands everything that we've gone through. He's gone through that temptation and he provides a way out of it. Right? That's the high priest that we have in Jesus Christ. All right, so in this section, we're talking about you know, Jesus as high priest through his life, through his obedience. He was tempted and yet without sin. He was completely obedient to the Father. That's the work that he does through his life. The next part and the rest of this lesson today will be what happens through his death, how he is a representative through his death. Point number two, our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished our redemption through the shedding of his blood and sacrificial death on the cross, which fully paid for all our sins. So we talked about the high priest had to do what? He offered the sacrifices. But again, we hear, we see Jesus Christ. Yes, he's, he's our high priest, but he is the sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice that is given to pay for our penalties, to satisfy the wrath of God. The first passage, Isaiah 53. Bob, could you read that for me? But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. 
if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Good, thank you. I, I absolutely love this verse, but it crushes me, uh, no pun intended, every time I read it. The Lord, Yahweh, was pleased to crush him. Him being Jesus Christ, of course. right? In his perfect plan of redemption, in his demonstration of perfect love, it pleased him to do that to his son. It's hard to understand, and yet that's the God we serve. Mark 10 for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, uh, demonstrating the servant leadership as a high priest. Acts 20. Tara, can you read that one for me, please? All right. Purchased with his own blood. This is uh, an episode where Paul is speaking to the elders at Ephesus. So whose church is it? It's God's. It's God's church. It's God's flock that these overseeing overseers have been given responsibility for. It's a great reminder for, for church leadership, for elders, for pastors, to remember this is God's church. This is God's flock. Ephesians 1, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Um, Chester, could you read the next one, Ephesians 5? Do you have the book there? Okay. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So I, I love this, the ending of that, um, in a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You know, compare that with what we just read in Isaiah 53, where it pleased Yahweh to crush him, and yet... Through all of this, a fragrant aroma back to Yahweh. And again, this incredible demonstration of his love, giving himself up. Right? He volunteered that. We'll talk about that in a second. All right, let me skip down to Colossians 1. Diane, can you read that one, please? And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. All right, good. So we have this term reconciled. So again, we started our discussion this morning talking about the Old Testament tabernacle, right? That was needed because we were separated from God. Because of His holiness, He must separate Himself from, from sin. Right? We were hostile towards God, it talks about in Romans. None who did good. Right? And that veil was a representation of that separation. What happened at Jesus' death? The veil was torn. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I mean, it happened, but it's a beautiful picture of that separation being taken away. And we can be reconciled now with God the Father through Jesus Christ. All right, let me skip down to Hebrews 10. By this, 
will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Again, well, we brought this up earlier where the high priests of the Old Testament had to continually give these sacrifices again and again and again. And it never took away the sins. It was a, a covering at the time, but it never fully took it away. Whereas Jesus Christ is our high priest, the perfect sacrifice, our sins are taken away. Past, present, and future. Glorious, glorious thought. Miss uh, Heather, can you read 1 Peter 1 for me? Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. All right, God's perfect plan of redemption from, from right eternity past. The precious blood, the lamb, unblemished. It had to be a spotless, perfect sacrifice. And that is our high priest. Again, I want you to get this image of who our high priest is in Jesus Christ. It's not just a title. It's not just a name. It's something he has demonstrated. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God. Right, We were purchased, and it was this uh, conundrum of who can open the seals. Only the perfect spotless lamb could open the seals. All right, good. So we talk about Jesus Christ, high priest, as the perfect sacrifice. On page 43, the top point three, Jesus' death was voluntary because no one took his life from him, but he laid it down on his own initiative. Right, That's important. He wasn't... He wasn't, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yes, God commanded him, but he did it of his own initiative, right? He was obedient to the Father, but he did it voluntarily. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? What was that in reference to? What was happening? What was the scene here in Matthew 26? The garden, right? It's when he was being betrayed by Judas. All right? Let's go down a couple passages because we have that in more fuller account, if you will, in John 18. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And I love this. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them, when therefore he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Right? Totally astonished. Again, therefore he asked them, who do you seek? You can see Jesus, right? Just very calmly. Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. 
that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom thou hast given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter, therefore having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. Of course it was Peter, right? And the slave's name was Malchus. Jesus therefore said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? So you can see what's playing out here, right? This is the betrayal. This was the plan all along. But what did Jesus say back up in Matthew 26? If I wanted to, I could command the legions to come and minister and protect. Where could he have used that earlier in our discussion? In the temptation. temptation, He could have easily called in the, the troops, if you will. But it was all part of the plan that he was obeying. Let's go back up to the second passage, John 10. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. All right, so he did it of his initiative, commanded by the Father. Is this not an absolute demonstration of his perfect love. Go to the next verse. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Again, you see in these roles that Jesus is is fulfilling the demonstration of those roles in his life, right? And here in his death. Beautiful demonstration of love. What's the application of that? Go down to the very last verse, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Karina and I have started counseling together, and as a couple, we often counsel couples. Um, And invariably, and we've only done a couple, but talking to some mentors, what often happens by the time counseling happens and they come in, what are they trying to do? They want to fix each other. Right? We're here because I need you to fix my wife or I need you to fix my husband. What we quickly try and do, though, is turn it back on the person. You need to understand your role, and this is one of those key ones for the husband. Here's this demonstration of your high priest who gave, laid down his life. That's, that's the picture you're supposed to have with your wife. Men, do we fail at that every single day? We absolutely do. But that's what we strive for. And that's what we get them focused on, right, in in these counseling sessions. Focus on your role. Your responsibility is to love your wife, to continue to die to self. I often joke that the great sanctifiers are marriage and children, but I say that in the most positive way I possibly can. I am not the man I am today or I would not be the man if I, if I was not married, if I did not have seven wonderful, blessed children. And I have one in the room, so I have to say that. <laughs> really, I, I am not the man I would be today if it wasn't for my precious wife. And having to die to self. And, and there's pleasure in that. There's joy in that. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. So again, application. I hope you're encouraged by that demonstration here. So Jesus' death, voluntarily, he laid it down by his initiative. All right, let's move on to point four. Jesus's death was also substitutionary and vicarious because we should have suffered instead of Christ and because it was provided for our benefit. What, what is this term vicarious? 
Say again. Right, to experience through someone else's actions. And here we have, we, there must be a penalty for sin. We all know that, right? And, and we deserved the penalty. We deserved death. But no, Jesus was our substitute, right? He bore that himself. And we live vicariously through that experience. And we'll talk a little bit about those actions that he took that we should have experienced but did not. First one being in Isaiah 53. Miss Millie, would you mind reading that one for me? Surely, <coughs> Surely our grief he himself bore in our sorrows. <coughs> he carried yet ourselves, esteemed him, stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Excellent, thank you. So what are, what are the actions you see that, that we should have received? Everything crushed, right? Everything. We should have been crushed. We should have been chastened. We should have been scourged. The iniquity should have fallen on us. But Jesus Christ, as our high priest, as the substitute, took all of that. Yes, please. Just a little side note here. Um, getting back to the, the meaning of the term vicarious, um, basically means uh, substitute, mm -hmm. intermediary. Uh, it's basically synonymous with substitutionary. Um, um, and it's the role of a priest to be that intermediary between us and God. And some denominations use that title, vicar, Mm. instead of priest, mm. meaning basically the same thing. Yeah, that's a great point. I didn't realize the origin of that. Thank you, Pastor Allen. Get a little trivia for today. All right, next verse, Luke 22. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Right in remembrance of our high priest. And I, and I wanted to encourage you in that way that the next time we have the Lord's Supper, which should be next week, right? Harken back to what we're talking about here today. Right? We are remembering what our high priest did in a substitutionary, in a vicarious way. Right? That beautiful substitution for the actions that we should have received as sinners. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who were the Jews looking for at this time? What kind of role were they looking for when the Messiah was going to come? King, right? We're going to talk about that in a few weeks, his role as king. But here we see him as high priest. That's what he came to do, to be our high priest. All right, the top of page 44. Rex, can you read John 6 for me, please? Sure. 
Our father ate the manna in the desert, as is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Is that John 6, 51? Oh, 51. I read 31. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. You, had, you had manna in there. It's close. <laughs> it's a little shorter. <laughs> I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Amen. Amen. So often a reference as the living bread or the living water, right? Which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Um, Bob, could you read 1 Corinthians 15 for me, please? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Good. The next passage, 2 Corinthians, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, we talked about this. Um, to say to be sin is, is rather to bear our sins. Um, go down to 1 Peter 2, 24. It's the third one from the bottom. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. So again, Jesus has not become sin. He bears our sin. Um, back up to 1 Timothy. Kayla, can you read 1 Timothy for me, please? For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. Again, this idea, we're under the topic of, um, <clears throat> you know, we've talked about, you know, voluntarily of his initiative. So you see here, who gave himself, he is the mediator, right, between God and men. That's the role of a high priest. Hebrews 2, but we do see him who has been made a little lower, or a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Again, that substitutionary, vicarious actions that we should have received. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Again, we'll talk about this idea of propitiation next week, but um, you notice he had to be made like his brethren in all things. We, we go back to those two natures. He had to have, he had to take on that human nature, right? So he could go through a perfect life to then be the high priest, to then be the perfect substitution, the perfect sacrifice, right? So he had to take on that nature. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Only had to happen one time. And the result of that, rejoicing, Revelations 5. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and its purchase for God with thy blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We were purchased with the blood of Christ. Good. All right. Um, Pastor Allen, anything you want to add there? We have um, some time left. We don't have to fill the whole time, but we covered the application on the next page. 
Um, study Matthew 4, how did Jesus respond to temptation? We talked a lot about that. We talked about what does vicarious mean? So we basically covered all of the elements on uh, the homework section of that. But Pastor Allen, anything you would add to our discussion? Maybe just um, getting back to the big picture here, we're looking at Christ's role as uh, prophet, priest, and king. That, so there, there's a sense in which each of those roles were pictured in the Old Testament um, mm. in the nation of Israel, God establishing um, uh, prophets, priests, and kings. Uh, each, each of those roles being in some sense a, a picture of how they all come together uh, in Christ. Yep, great point. Thank you. Um, any any thoughts from you guys? Again, we, we started with the, this idea of these roles, prophet, priest, and king, and it's so easy to let that just roll off your lips. But we've talked a lot today about the application um, in, in all of these roles, how important it is to maybe give us a greater, higher view of God, and, and specifically Jesus Christ. But any thoughts about applications? Anything you want to share? Chester? I have some questions just rolling around in my head around yeah. Okay. So, Scripture tells us to flee youthful lusts. Mm-hmm. To, uh, if you look at the verse you listed, that with every temptation, God has provided a way of escape. Mm-hmm. But Jesus is led up by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil, but not to run from it, to sit in it, and to deal with it. And there's two mm. different pictures. Mm-hmm. But it's a model for us of what does the word do for us in temptation? How do we wrestle with the temptation? It's not Joseph. You're tempted, get out of there, leave your coat, and, and be done with it. It's yeah. not how does a man take fire into his bosom and not get burned. It's the word is really going to be you know, it's my shield, it's, it's, it's my protection. So how do you reconcile the two pictures of dealing with temptation? Both are accurate and true, mm-hmm. but they're very different in the way that you address temptation. Yeah, so how would you answer that? <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's dissect that, that's a great question. You know, let's start with, with Jesus. So why was Jesus led into the desert? To be tempted. Why, though? Keep pulling that thread. So that he would be able to relate to us. That's absolutely part of it, right? And we could relate to how he handled okay. temptation. So I also want to know how Scripture does address the issues. He's, he's tempted in a number of ways, one of which is, if this is real... And if you are who you say you are, and mm. the word says this, then you should be able to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so his temptation is slightly different in what he's being tempted to address. Who he is, what yeah. he should be doing, and what scripture says is real or not. Yeah. My, my, I think where you're going with this, what I'm trying to do is have us dissect our, ourselves versus Jesus. So, so Jesus is on this path 
the sovereign path that God has laid out with a purpose of everything that he does, right? And, and so he had to go through that temptation. Number one, so that he can now be our high priest um, to show us how he responds to temptation, to show that he was without sin, right? He had to be that perfect representation, clearly a plan for everything that happened with Jesus. And, and he did everything that the Father told him to do. Right, so you can you can explain the temptation of Jesus that way. For ourselves, does God tempt us? No. I'll get to you in a second, Rex. Does He tempt us? No. Does He test us through trials? Absolutely. Right. For what purpose? To grow. To grow for our sanctification. So we go through we go through this world, this life, having to wrestle with, with sin and being tempted because we still carry this desire to, to sin, even though we have a new nature, right? But, but our path is for sanctification. So you can see slightly different purposes, if that makes sense. So that's how I would explain that. Does that make sense? It's a great question, though. Rex? Yeah, the difference mainly is the Holy Spirit led Jesus uh, to the temptation the Holy Spirit never leads us to temptation. Amen. Because we are sinful and we can fall. <laughs> yeah. Where Christ wasn't going to fall. Yeah. So, but he's it was done to set an example to show us that in all things he didn't fall. Right. Good. I have a question. But yeah. So, did Jesus go to hell after he died? I, I, my personal view is I don't believe he went to hell. No. But but so we would have to, to we would have to study that in scripture. That that's a great question. Um, let's table that for another time, though. Is that fair? All right, Miss Heather. I was thinking about how um, the temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness, how he was tempted in the three main ways that we are, with the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Mm-hmm. So that kind of encompasses how he dealt with the same temptations that we did. Maybe. Not as in like word for word, I don't know, but like the general like we've been tempted for like power or authority or control, and Jesus was tempted by Satan when he talks about like I'll give you all this domain and its glory because it's been handed over to me and I'll give it to whomever I wish, and so that's like an example of Jesus being tempted for power. Yeah, yeah, it does. And Heather, you bring up a good point, and let's let's maybe dissect that um, a little bit, and then uh, we might wrap it up after this one. And, and Pastor Allen would love for you to jump in here in a second. Um, when we talk about the the categories, if you will, right? Um, it does. It, it seems to cover those three main that we saw in the, in the garden, right, with with Eve. And so to some respect, we can say, well, Jesus never experienced this particular temptation. And we can say he certainly has has experienced every category of temptation that we're going to face. Okay, so that's step one. Step two, I think we have to be cautious. There's a little bit of a, um, I don't know that it's clear, how did he experience temptation, right? Did he have a, a nature where he lusted with his eyes? I don't, I don't know. You know what I mean? I, I think we have to be careful about assuming um, was it an internal um, temptation or was it purely external? Uh, the nature of that, I, I would have to study that some more, if that makes sense. But I think we have to be cautious about assuming he had you know, looked at a woman with lustful eyes. I, I don't know that that's true, and we have to be careful about that. 
That's excellent. And I, I love that. It ties, you know, Diane, what you were talking about, putting yourself in a certain situation. We, we tend to want to stand instead of flee, right? And, and to your point, and, and Chester, I think the point you were making, specifically with Jesus, right, he was being tempted by Satan. What did he do? He stood firm with Scripture. Love that. Love the way you frame that. All right, I'm going to buy you some time back. Let me close in prayer.